Years ago, J.P. Morgan financed the construction of the largest and most advanced ocean-going vessel ever conceived of by the human mind. The designers and the builders boasted it was the most well-designed, most in indestructible, most powerful, most luxurious, lux luxurious ocean liner ever built. Unsinkable, they said. Uh, and, and they went so far as to actually say, claim that even God couldn't sink this ship. Passengers who boarded this ship would be absolutely certain they would be safe, secure, very well taken care of by the dedicated, well-trained, highly competent staff and crew who were the best and most experienced in the world. But you know the story, and you've probably seen the movie, the Titanic sinks on its maiden voyage. Not because God sank it, you know, to prove a point, though if I were God, I would have been tempted, uh, but it sank because of simple carelessness, perhaps overconfidence in its durability and integrity. They were moving way too fast in waters known to be littered with icebergs at this time of year. It was dark, it was 11.40 at night, visibility was poor, and tragically, because the owners, the White Star Line, were so confident that it could not sink, the Titanic was not equipped with enough lifeboats for all the passengers, barely half of what they actually needed. It's a lesson that seems to be repeated in some way over and over again down through history. Very, very few of us ever really learning Overconfidence in ourselves, in our own ability, in our own knowledge and wisdom, in our own experience and competence, in our own capacity to navigate through life's uncertainties on our own. It, it seems many of us never learn. And, and those of us who do, do learn, most of us have to learn the hard way. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. And then it goes on to say, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. See, whenever we put confidence in ourselves, in our own understanding, in our own collective knowledge and wisdom, in our own in our own damaged and fallible sense of morality and justice, when we put confidence in anything or anyone to the exclusion of God, we find ourselves on a sinking ship. So, I have some good news and some bad news for you today. Most people prefer to hear the bad news first, so here you go. The world we inhabit is a sinking ship. That's not my opinion. That's, that is what is consistently communicated all through the scriptures. The world is under the control of sin. The apostle John says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Jesus multiple times referred to the evil one, the devil, as the prince of this world. Every scripture writer, Moses, the prophets, the writers of the Psalms, Jesus, Paul, Peter, James, John, all of them, 
all essentially tell us the same thing. This world has gone astray, it has rejected God, and it is under the control of the evil one, and therefore it is a sinking ship. And that's why Paul tells us not to let our thinking be shaped by or molded by this world. It's why James, the brother of Jesus, tells us not to be friends with this world and that to be a friend of this world means to be an enemy of God, which is why in another place John says that this world is passing away and all the pride and evil that is associated with it. And Actually, let's read that verse in context. John writes this, Do not love this world or the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is passing away. So, so, so don't get too attached to this world. Don't find your joys and pleasures in this world because it is passing away very rapidly along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So the bad news is this ship upon which we are presently passengers is sinking. The good news is that nobody has to go down with the ship. Nobody. It's good news, right? Okay, but sadly... There's more bad news, but then there's going to be more good news, so stay with me. First, the more bad news. Despite the glorious reality that nobody has to go down with the ship, no, nobody has to perish in the waters of sin and separation from God, people are still perishing in the waters of sin and separation from God. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. You and I are called by God and have been equipped by God to partner with him in doing something about that. The name of our series is First Things First. We're two weeks into this series called First Things First. Last week I talked about how love must be first. Therefore, above all else, love. And, and I included in last week's message a verse from the Old Testament that Jesus himself quoted in the New Testament and that he said... Uh, was the greatest of all commandments. In fact, he, he, re, he said this commandment represents all the other commandments rolled up into one. It has come to be known as the great commandment, and this is what it says. We looked at it last week. Let's look at it again. The, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So when it comes to first things first, First, love. First, love God and love people. First of all, love. Now, along with the great commandment, Jesus gave his followers something that has come to be known as the Great Commission. Following Jesus' resurrection, before he was taken back up to he into heaven, he, he left his followers with these instructions. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Aren't you so grateful for that? All authority has been given to him. He continues, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always 
to the very end of the age. This instruction from Jesus to his disciples has come to be known as the Great Commission. Jesus gave his followers a commission, a co-mission. Co meaning together and mission meaning task or assignment. He has given his disciples a task together, a commission. And this commission was to go everywhere and tell every person all over the world the good news that they don't have to go down with the ship. There is a lifeboat. Jesus was telling his followers, give them that good news and then teach them to obey everything I have commanded, which can be summed up in this, love God and love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. One of the most important, significant, eternally consequential ways that we love others is by wholeheartedly embracing the Great Commission. The instructions Jesus gave to all his followers to tell, that, to tell others the good news that they don't have to perish and to help them become disciples of Jesus. So here's my main point today. A great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission results in a great church. I wish I had thought that up. That's actually a quote from, I, I believe, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Church book. It's a great quote. A great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission results in a great church. It's a co-mission, an assignment we carry out as a church together everyone doing their part. See, Jesus called us, his followers, to be fishers of men. Jesus said, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, it's very easy for us to lose sight of the great commission Jesus gave us all. It's human nature to think about ourselves first. It's, it's human nature to be focused on our own welfare, to play it safe, to, to seek First, our own safety and security. And in fact, many businesses have huge signs in their workplace that, that actually read, safety first, safety first, right? That's a great motto for a business. It really is, and uh, perhaps a very necessary one for a business. But that was not Jesus' motto. And it was not a motto that Jesus passed down to his disciples. In fact, just the opposite. He called his disciples to risk everything, to lay their lives on the line, to the point of giving up their lives as he himself laid down his life to save others. Nobody should risk their lives for their business or their career or their monet or monetary advancement. But Jesus said, I have called you to something worth risking your life for, something worthy of your whole life. It's understandably very counterintuitive for us. We tend to seek safe, protective environments where we can control things and where things are safe and predictable. Churches tend to do this. And sadly, what has become very common for churches in our day is this. Instead of being fishers of men, we've become keepers of aquariums. Huddling together, in a safe, controlled environment, protected and insulated from all that bad stuff out there, safe and secure. We may sometimes jump from one aquarium to another aquarium and then to another, but we aren't the fishers of men that Jesus called us to be. In many cases, we've just become keepers of aquariums. 
Sometimes you hear people say about their church, I, 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 I like our church small and intimate and, and cozy. I, I don't want to grow. But you've got to understand what you're actually saying when you say that. See, the Titanic was tragic on many levels. The overconfidence, the carelessness, the, the hubris that likely led to the carelessness. But one thing that's not well known or, or talked about very much is the fact that not, not only were there not enough lifeboats for the number of passengers, half as many as they needed, but even the lifeboats they had were not full when they were launched. In fact, one lifeboat, only 24 people were in that lifeboat despite the fact it had a capacity for 65. Another had only 12 people in it, seven crew and five passengers despite having the capacity for 40. That makes no sense. Now, one explanation is that the lifeboats were, were, when the lifeboats were first being launched, a lot of people were not convinced that the ship was actually sinking. And, and so there was not this sense of urgency. I mean, why leave the luxury and the security uh, of, of this great ship said to be unsinkable and, and brave the elements to get into a relatively small lifeboat with virtually no creature comforts or amenities. I mean, after all, the, the, the champagne and the hors d'oeuvres are still being circulated as the ship is sinking. The eight-piece band continued to play on the deck until it was just no longer possible because of the ship listing so bad. Um, so a lot of people just weren't convinced that the ship was sinking. But as some, some of the other explanations as to why the lifeboats were not completely full, well, one was that certain lifeboats were designated only for passengers of a particular class. People didn't want to let people of lower classes into their lifeboat. But what's most tragic is that even after the ship went down and hundreds of people were in the freezing water, clinging to debris, screaming for help, most of the lifeboats, still having plenty of room for many other people, most of them opted against rescuing people, fearing, being, being fearful of being swamped, fearing for their own safety and security. What a tragedy. But that is sadly characteristic of many Jesus followers and many churches today. We are comfortable with who we have in our little lifeboat. Not so sure we want outsiders. They may rock the boat, upset the balance, threaten our security. We like our little family. See, most of the time, church members aren't aware that they have this leaning. It's, it's usually kind of more under the surface. It's, it's usually more like this. You know, I like our little community. I, I, I'm a part of it. I, 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 I'm somebody here. I'm known. I have a place. I feel significant. Ba basically, what they're saying is this. I'm a big fish in a small pond, and if the pond grows, I may easily become a small fish in a big pond, and I don't want that to happen. My piece of the pie might get smaller. I might become less of a somebody. So they think, they foolishly think, which is not the case, but that is the fear. That is the sentiment. Nobody ever says that out loud. R relatively few could ever admit it even to themselves. But it is a very real psychological, uh, sociological dynamic that often keeps small churches small. 
People don't want to give up their seat. They don't want to give up their place. They don't, give up their, they don't want to give up their position, their perceived popularity, security. And yet, all those things are precisely the things that Jesus called every one of his followers to give up, to lay down, to let go of if they wanted to follow him. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. It's, it's impossible to follow Jesus without eventually coming to the, the realization it's not about you. But that's so easy to forget, even as a church. Even the most outward-focused churches, over time, tend to turn inward to make it about themselves, their wants, their needs, their security and well-being, even their likes and dislikes. Some, sometimes churches, and you've probably seen this, they even develop their own mannerisms, their own clothing styles, e even language, terminology that makes sense to the insiders, but to nobody else. You know, I, I just feel led right now to have us all just lay our hands on Bob right now and just intercede together in the Spirit for an, an anointed mantle of, mantle of travel mercies just to fall on Bob right now. And Bob's like, uh, let me just pray on that. You know, it's so easy for churches to become so inward focused that they become their own little island to themselves that, that no one can relate to anymore. Every once in a while, not very often, but occasionally I will have someone say to me, someone from our own church say to me, Jim, why do we make a, such a big deal out of our setup? It, it, all the canopies and the hospitality and the snacks and refreshments, all, it's just a lot of work and it costs so much money. The music, the lights, you know, the, the equipment, we don't need all that stuff. We don't care about that stuff. We just love our little church family, and we'd show up even if we didn't have any of that stuff. I mean, sometimes churches adopt this mentality and actually fear, fierce, uh, fearless, uh, uh, fiercely defend it. And to be fair, if you read some of what the Apostle Paul wrote through a certain lens, you can actually make a case for it. The church is for Christians. The church is a place to get away from lost people for an hour, broken people, people who might disagree with us, and come together, just a group of Christians come together, read the Bible together, talk about the Bible, sing songs together, pray and do other Christian stuff together. Church is for Christians, and it clearly is. But Paul says that the church is the body of Christ. Question, when Christ walked this earth, was his body primarily for himself? Was Jesus all about himself? No, he gave himself up. He sacrificed himself. He laid down his very life. He gave his body to save all of mankind. Somebody once said, the church is the only organization that exists primarily for the benefit of its non-members. That may be overstating it just a little bit, but it makes a pretty powerful point. See, the reality is there are many, many more individuals who belong to this church, Hope Community Church, that are not yet part of this church. They're not here yet. Perhaps people who are right now clinging to debris in desperate need of rescue. If the church is God's family, as, as all the scriptures talk about, 
Jesus himself says. The church is his family. There are many of our brothers and sisters, many of our family members who are still missing from this family. Many. See, I come from a large family. I have six siblings, plus my mom and dad, nine of us total. And when we would go on vacations as a family when I was a kid, it was, it was an adventure because there were just so many of us to keep track of. And it was wonderful. But, but imagine that we were traveling together, my family traveling together in some foreign country, and all of us kids were abducted by some evil person. So our mom and dad call the authorities, the authorities form a search party, and then go looking for us. Now imagine that they find two of us. And upon finding the two of us, the authorities decide, hey, success. <laughs> we found them, found two of them. Let's call it a day. Imagine what my parents would say to that especially if the two kids they found agreed with them. Yeah, I'm good with that. They found the important ones. They found the favorite ones, you know. So let's call it good. The others really don't matter that much, do they? I mean, let's just be happy and grateful you found us and just get used to having a smaller family. I, I call Jim's bike, you know. Obviously, my parents would not be okay with that or with their two found children being okay with that. They would hope that their children would love one another enough to keep searching and keep praying and keep doing all they possibly could to find their brothers and sisters, not growing weary, not giving up until every last one of them is found, rescued, brought home, and reconnected with the rest of our family, no matter what the cost, no matter how long it takes. See, there are a lot of people out there who are destined to be part of this church family or a church family somewhere. Perhaps they are not convinced the ship is sinking yet. That could be a possibility. But maybe they know very well the, sing the ship is sinking. And maybe right now they are looking for something to grab onto, something that will offer them some hope of rescue. So when somebody asks me why we work so hard on Sundays, and spend so much money on hospitality and canopies and fun decorations for the kids ministry and music and lights and live streaming equipment. It always presents an opportunity to remind them it's not just for us. It's not just about us. It's about who we're trying to reach with God's love, who we're trying to win back who we're trying to capture the attention of, whose hearts we are wanting to move, to inspire, to impress with the love of God. And we believe everything we do and the way we do it communicates God's love, his extravagant love. Because one day, someone who is far from God, it may be your son, it may be your daughter, it may be your brother or sister or a friend, at work or school, one day they just might think to themselves, I feel like I'm going under. I, I feel my whole life is like a boat that's sinking, that's taken on water, and I just don't know how much longer I can keep from going under. I need help. And they're going to do something that they haven't done in a long time, if ever. They're going to give church a try. How tragic if for the first time in 10 years that they went to church, they walked into a church that wasn't expecting them, that wasn't planning on them being there, 
And therefore, not much preparation was made, or it was made haphazardly to make them feel, you know, welcome or valued. Not much in the way of hospitality, not much in the way of creativity or imagination or planning. Nobody really seemed to have much enthusiasm for them being there. In fact, truth be known, nobody had much enthusiasm for being there themselves. There was really nobody there that they could relate to or identify with. The music sounded like a family reunion talent contest. The message was a bunch of theological jargon that didn't make sense to any, didn't make sense to them at all. And so, unmoved, uninspired, unengaged, they decide the whole thing has nothing to offer them. Tragic. Happens every day. Jesus said, I tell you, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You see, in saying this, Jesus is placing a higher priority on the one person who was an outsider than the 99 insiders. There was more celebration, more partying in heaven. God receives more glory in heaven over one lost person that has been found over the 99 others who've already been found. A lost person being found, returning home, brings more glory to God and, uh, and more honor to God than just about anything else. So, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God, right? Whatever we do, we work at it with all of our hearts. And we go out onto the roads and the country lanes and we compel them to come in so that his house may be full, which means we make the message compelling. We make everything about church compelling. And we will be effective. And we, or, or excuse me, we will not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. So in other words, we will be effective. We will succeed. We will prevail if we don't get tired, turn inward, and just don't care anymore. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, gates are defensive structures, right? So the picture here is not of the church hunkering down and finding safety and security from the onslaught of hell in our protected little huddle behind the safety of heaven's gates. No, the picture here is of the church going on the offense and assaulting the gates of hell behind which are our brothers and sisters who have been taken captive by the devil and we've got to do everything we can, give our all to liberate them in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us when we assault them. Jesus says, never forget, and never forget, love is our weapon. First, love. A great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission results in a great church. Erwin McManus, um, he was a pastor in L.A. I think he still is a pastor in L.A., the author of a book, Unstoppable Force. He describes how he struggled as a parent 
uh, about the safety of his kids. He, he, he talked about how he'd send his, his little boy, Aaron, at the time, maybe nine or ten years old, to a Christian camp in the mountains, and, and he felt good about it because they're going to teach him the Bible and, and, you know, no ghost stories and stuff like that. There are a, a lot of camps, you know. Uh, no go ghost stories and stuff like that. True, there's no ghost stories at Christian camps because Christians don't believe in ghosts. Instead, they tell demon and Satan stories. So when he came home, he was scared to death. He didn't want the light turned off in his room. And, and, he, and he goes, Daddy, they were telling stories about demons and people being possessed by Satan. You know, ghost stories are so much easier to, to talk about because you say, well, ghosts don't exist. And he says, Daddy, would you pray that I would be safe? Would you pray that God would make me safe? And Erwin McNanus describes how he felt this was an epic moment in his young son's, son's life, a, a pivotal moment. And he thought about it for a moment, and then he, said, he, he told his son, Aaron, I will not pray that you will be safe. Instead, I will pray that God will make you dangerous. I'm going to pray that God will make you so dangerous that all the demons would flee in terror anytime you enter the room. And he said, all right, Daddy, let's pray that I will be really, really dangerous. God's plan for Hope Community Church is not for us to play it safe, to seek our own safety and security, to, you know, to hunker down, to isolate ourselves. It, it's not for us to settle in and build a wall of protection and avoid the challenges of life, to seek a haven from the stress and conflict in the world. That is not what God has called Hope Community Church to do. He's called us to become dangerous as a church and as individual followers of Jesus and to assault the gates of hell and win back his lost children and to fill this place with his lost children. Author and pastor John Ortberg, you know, worship me, why don't you guys come back up? Uh, he, he talks about how when he, he, his family visited Nantucket Island in Massachusetts, he, he visited, he and his family visited a museum there that is devoted to a volunteer organization that got started centuries ago. In, in those days, travel by sea was extremely dangerous. Storms of the Atlantic uh, combined with a rocky nature of the coast of Massachusetts. Many lives were lost every single year within just one mile of land. And so a group of volunteers went into the life-saving business. They banded together to form what was then called the Massachusetts Humane Society. And there's a whole museum devoted to it in Nantucket Island right now, today, even today. They, they built little huts along the shore and, and equipped them with boats and, and all kinds of life-saving equipment. And you can still see a few of these little life-saving stations that they built. And they had people watching them and manning them all the time. They would go man these stations and watch the sea. And whenever a ship would go down, a word would go out, and they'd drop everything to save every life they could. If you were sinking but were within sight of one of these little life-saving stations, there'd be people who would risk everything for you. And they did it for no money, for no recognition, just because of love and compassion. To remind them how seriously they took this task, they adopted a motto. <laughs> Want to know what their motto was? You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. That's a catchy little recruiting slogan, isn't it? <clears throat> you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. You can go to this museum and read accounts of people who risked their lives saving people that they'd never met. Got to go out, 
Don't have to come back. Well, over time, things changed, and after a while, the Coast Guard began to take over this task. From time to time, the Coast Guard and life-saving society worked side by side, but eventually the idea was adopted, let's just let the professionals do it. They get paid for it. We're just volunteers. Volunteers stopped manning these little life-saving stations and stopped searching the coastline for sinking ships and people going under. Stopped sending out teams to save drowning folks. They couldn't bring themselves to disband. I mean, it actually, the life-saving society still exists to this day. They meet every once in a while to have dinner. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. There's just no more little life-saving stations out on the shore watching for somebody going down. Happens all the time. Not in a day or a month, but over time, a church can forget what it's part of. It forgets it's in the life-saving business. And when this happens, the church doesn't usually disband, at least not till much later. People still meet, they still congregate in the same room. They're just not scouring their offices or neighborhoods or schools or networks to see if there's somebody that needs to be rescued. Sometimes they even start turning on each other, bickering over small, relatively insignificant things. They hold services. Some of them have, many of them have buildings and budgets and staffs and programs. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. Jesus is still looking for people who will give their lives for his purposes, even if, if, even if it involves great risk people who will scour the coast in search of people who need to be rescued. Listen, that's what the church is. That's what the church is called to be. A great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission results in a great church. I want to be part of a great church. And I know you do too. So Heavenly Father, we ask, would you help us to become a great church simply by following you, following your example, and not thinking first of ourselves and our own comfort and safety and preferences, but to actually think about how we can more effectively reach people that are maybe going under, going down, that are maybe clinging to debris, just trying to stay afloat. God, give us creativity. Give us enthusiasm. Give us passionate hearts to see your lost kids found again and brought back in and made part of your family. Lord, help us to be effective in that. Help us to be, uh, to be uh, totally reliant upon you upon the power of your Holy Spirit, but not to be negligent and not to be unprepared, not to be um, caught off guard. Help us to be ready to risk everything for you and for your cause. And Lord, there may be somebody here in our service today that feels like they're going under, that's not sure that they can stay afloat any longer. Lord, we pray for that person right now. We pray that they would simply come to the realization that you are the great rescuer, that you gave your life to rescue them, 
and that they can, they don't have to go down with the ship. They can find new life, new beginning. They can be saved no matter what they've done, no matter how far they have drifted, no matter what, what their past may be in their past. They can be rescued because of what you have done for them. We are rescued when we put our faith and trust in you. And Lord, I pray that right now that person would put their faith and trust in you and begin to learn what it means to be your follower. And Lord, you've told us there's more rejoicing in heaven over one person that prays that prayer. And I pray that we would see that prayer answered over and over and over again in this church and in every other church in Santa Barbara and in this country and all throughout this globe. As, church, as, as churches continue to reach out in, uh, to, the, to people that are, that are going under with your love in your name. Amen.